America is experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in its history, greater than the First and the Second Great Awakening in every revival in the U.S. combined. But instead of a massive shift into the church, what we're seeing is a mass exodus and the greatest de-churching in nearly 250 years. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And on this podcast, you'll hear from Michael Graham, co-author of the new book, The Great De-Churching. Based on the most comprehensive study of people leaving the church in America, the book gives keen insights into this phenomenon. You'll learn why people are leaving the church, which demographics are leaving in the greatest numbers, and what can be done to stop the bleed. And the results may surprise followers of this podcast. Though much of our reporting focuses on corruption and abuse in the church, these issues were not the greatest factors people cited for leaving. The reasons were much more mundane than you might think, and we'll dig into those in just a minute. But first, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marcorda Barrington. If you're looking for a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience, Judson University is for you. Judson is located on 90 acres, just 40 miles west of Chicago in Elgin, Illinois. The school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Plus, you can take classes online as well as in person. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcord of Barrington. Marcord is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcord, are men of integrity. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me is Michael Graham, Program Director at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. He's also the executive producer and writer for the As in Heaven podcast. And he's also a member at Orlando Grace Church, where Jim Davis, who's the co-author for his latest book, The Great De-Churching, is also a teaching pastor. So, Michael, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you join me. So good to be here with you, Julie. So, Michael, your book is based on an extensive study that sought to prove or disprove this thesis that America is in the middle of this largest and greatest religious shift in its history. And what you discovered is pretty sobering. Would you tell me about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the Cliff Notes version is that 40 million adult Americans have left houses of worship across all religious traditions. And by and large, almost all of that has occurred in the last 30 years. So from the moment of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit to today, 40 million people gone from, you know, the various pews of all religious traditions. Now, most of those are out of what you'd call Christian traditions, about 15 million of that out of evangelical traditions, and then about another 20 million out of Roman Catholic and mainline traditions. The other traditions are a lot smaller. So we we weren't really sure what we would be looking at in terms of why. There were two prevailing storylines, depending on what your kind of media diet looked like. If your media diet looked a little bit left-leaning, then the story was basically that people had been leaving houses of worship primarily because of mistakes made by those institutions themselves. So this would be things like racism, misogyny, abuse, um, political syncretism clergy scandal. If your media diet leaned a little bit to the right, the prevailing story 
was basically a story of secularism or sexual revolution, progressivism. People are leaving houses of worship because they're no longer worshiping the triune God. They're worshiping some other, you know, forms of, you know, non-Christian things. The reality is that you can find several million people who would fit both that first story or that second story. However, most of the people might have elements of either of those two stories in there, but most of them left for really, really boring reasons. <laughs> so the challenge is, is like not necessarily saying that story A or story B is wrong. There's actually a story C that is not as interesting <laughs> that, that's also there and is kind of the, um, the water that we're all kind of in is that the number one reason why people, you know, left houses of worship and stopped going on at least a monthly basis. So how that's how we define de-churching. Somebody mm -hmm. who used to go to church um, or a house of worship at least monthly, consistently, and now less than once per year. So even if you went, to, if you go to church on Christmas Eve or Christmas or Easter or Christmas and Easter, we still counted you as, you know, in, in our study as being church. So if you think the 40 million number sounds scary, you know, if you take all the Christmas and Easter people out. <laughs> that is like a really, really low bar. There's many, many more people. But basically, um, you know, the number one reason, you know, I moved, you know, right after that is uh, attendance was inconvenient. You know, after that is some kind of, you know, marriage, divorce, you know, new child or some other significant family change. After you kind of get past some of those reasons, you start to get into some of the reasons, you know, with where people experience, you know, some more pain or some more friction, either at the individual level or at the institutional level. But it really kind of looks like of the 40 million people who left, 30 million left what we called casually and about 10 million left as casualties. Mm. And so 10 million people is a lot of people. Okay. I don't mm -hmm. want to downplay at all um, the people who have significant church hurt at the individual, institutional, or both levels. But there's also just kind of 30 million people where it just kind of looks like, okay, well, just the inertia of American life and their rhythms and habits just kind of had them floating on. Now, the interesting thing about um, really across the board um, both the people who left casually, you know, and unintentionally, as well as the people who left ca as casualties and left highly intentionally, most of them are willing to return today to a house of worship, you know, of some sort. Some of them are willing to go back to exactly what they left, and some of them are not willing to go back to exactly what they left, but willing to go to something that we would all consider as being part of the historic Christian tradition. Yeah, I was surprised when I read it, how many people just dropped out because, well, even COVID, like they just got out of the habit. And I guess we're, we're seeing that. I mean, I know that's a phenomenon, but it's, it's stunning in some ways that something that you would expect to be so central to a person's life that they would give it up just because it's inconvenient or they get out of the habit of going. And yet, maybe that speaks to where we're the spiritual state before that happened. But that was a surprising, I thought, finding of the study. I thought, too, just thinking through what's at stake, uh, which you do kind of in that first section, 
relationally what's happening, you know, between parents and their kids. And you had this one line, which struck me because I'm over 50. And it says, anecdotally, we know of almost no parents over the age of 50 who don't have at least one child who is de-churched. And, you know, I've got three kids. I I guess I I read that and I just was very grateful because none of my kids are de-churched. But I mean, certainly... Uh, wow, we felt like we have been in a war, you know, for their soul at different times within their lives. And, and just, you know, by the grace of God, I think, have seen them embrace faith. But there are a lot of things in here that remind me of the situation that we're in. I mean, this between parents and their children. And of course, I have so many friends, I mean, that are just beautiful parents and probably did a 10 times better job than I did. And their, their dealing was just such heartache over their kids leaving their faith, leaving the church, but even, you know, at state culturally, how fractured we are mentally. I mean, talk about some of these impacts on who we are as, you know, communities and as Americans that are really going to be impacted as we see this begin to play out. Let's start at the purely secular level. Why would I care about this if even I was an atheist or agnostic or a, mm. or a nun, nothing in particular? The first thing I would say is you should care about this phenomenon because it's going to, at least sociologically, reorder many aspects of American culture and society. How many different trends can you think about that impact one in six adult Americans? There aren't many. And so, you know, the implications of this will have implications in terms of um, politics and political voting groups. It will have an impact on the social safety net in our country. Um, There are certain um, studies that have shown that as much as 40% of the America's social safety net, and the social safety net being the kinds of things that are there for people when they're, you know, when they're at their hardest or most challenging moments, that 40% of the, the social safety net in this country is basically coming from religious nonprofits. Mm-hmm. And so when you see one in six adult Americans, you know, opt out of um, those kind of ties, you know, thick, thicker ties you know, and local ties to local religious institutions, that's going to have an impact for sure on the social safety net. And that I don't think that that's in the interest of, you know, either common good or human flourishing. We estimate in the book that that's probably about $25 billion that just exited out of the religious nonprofit, you know, world. Um, I mean, you're talking about $1.4 trillion in terms of the total income of the people who have disconnected from uh, local churches. You have a lot of implications for institutions. Certainly you're going to see, you know, churches and houses of worship that are going to um, struggle, perhaps even close. You'll have others where the trend of decline will continue and that will put, you know, additional strain on those institutions. There'll probably be consolidation that takes place that's there. But if you're listening to this and, and maybe you yourself are de-churched, is it's like, well, I miss you, mm-hmm. okay? Because I go to church and, it, and if you're not there, I'm, I'm worse off because of your absence. You know, at, at the local church level, it's like, well, de-churching is impoverishing our churches, because you have all these people who are, you know, amazing image bearers and then who like I want to know and love and experience, 
And, you know, I think about like the 59 one and others, you know, in the New Testament, you know, at least over half of those, you know, require, you know, we have to be embodied in order to, you know, to do those things. And so I'm just worse off when there's people who aren't there anymore and they're missed. And so, and then, you know, zooming all the way down to like the familial level, it's, you know, there's tremendous pain and hurt there. You know, we're not talking about just, you know, a number on a spreadsheet. You're talking about real people's lives and, you know, real things in their story and real pains and real hurts sometimes. Um, sometimes for, you know, for, you know, for very good reasons, you know, people, you know, disconnect themselves from these things, you know, anybody, you know, anybody familiar with, you know, you and your ministry, you know, knows these stories and they know them well. And so, you know, I think, you know, on, on that front, there, there's just tremendous things at stake. You know, what, what does the, the Thanksgiving or the Christmas dinner table look like? And what, what pieces of sadness are there? Or, these, these places where, you know, people land, you know, different from their family members in terms of how they process, you know, really big conversations. Those can be really hard, hard or, and lonely and, and isolating things when you find, you know, you just find yourself in, in, a, in a very different place. But, you know, one of the things that we advocate in the book is a posture of quiet, calm curiosity for everybody. You can only find yourself in that in that place of being quiet, calm, and curious with other people when you have a sense of security in yourself. And I think that that security is best found when we're confident in our identity as image bearers, made in the image of God, redeemed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and confident of our future, our, our eschatological future in, in the kingdom of God. And so when we have that that gives us the freedom to not feel like we need to be defensive. We can just listen to other people and hear what they have to say, you know, and believe people when they're telling us about the, the wins and losses, um, particularly the wins and losses in their experiences with people who claim Christ or institutions that claim to be Christian. And so I think there's a lot of implications um, for these things. There's just a lot that's at stake. I think that there's much work to be done, both on the individual front, and there's a lot of work to be done on the institutional front. How we lead as institutions, I think, is probably an area that energizes me because <laughs> I have found so much dysfunction within those institutions. And I, I did like that you said, we don't have to go back to the church we left. And I'm in a house church now. I love it. And I find myself questioning a lot of the stuff that I just took on face value. I was having a discussion recently. I'm like, I don't know, like preaching, is that really the best way for us to study the Bible? We get together and we open the Bible and we study it together. And I found that incredibly rich, richer than a lot of times when I have somebody giving me basically a lecture for 30 or 40 minutes on their opinion of what it says. And I find it just much richer to go right in and just get digging ourselves. So I find myself, at least, and the people that, that I'm in contact with are all asking these questions. What does it really have to look like? I am just in contact with so many people where it hasn't felt safe. And so I just have such a degree of empathy for those who have trouble. And, and I say, you know, my, even my own children, I, I watch them try to find a church and 
it is unbelievably hard, unbelievably. And, and that just breaks my heart because I feel like so many of the vibrant churches that I knew when I was their age don't exist anymore, or they've been just the ministries that I think of that, that were so vibrant on campuses and so forth just aren't there. And so we do have an unbelievable amount of work to do. And I, and I thought it was interesting. You, you also found, like when we're talking about leaving the church, like who's de-churching, this isn't any particular group. This is like everybody across the board, right? It's unilateral across the board. You know, in certain places, it's maybe a little bit more prominent or pronounced than others. And the timing of which, you know, various different groupings, you know, may have, you know, kind of floated on looks different. But by and large, yeah, it's, it's, there, there's no, there's no group that's immune. Well, let's dig into some of the groups because that's what I, I do find really fascinating, but also I think really educational because if, if we're going to be relating to these folks in hopefully a winsome way, it's helpful to know who they are. And I think there are some misconceptions of who they are. So you, you basically found there's five groups of de-churched individuals, cultural Christians, de-churched mainstream evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, de-churched BIPOC, so black, indigenous, and people of color, and de-churched mainline Protestants. Let's dig into each one of those groups. Let's start with the cultural Christians who, you know, I'm guessing these are the people that grew up, went to church on Christmas and Easter, and maybe a few times in between, but basically a little bit of church background, but not really a saving faith, probably. Yeah. So the, you know, every, every one of those groups we mentioned had one thing in common. They all went to a house of worship, at least consistently on a monthly basis, but now less than once per year. So the culture in terms of size, the 15 million people who left evangelical traditions, and that's the first four profiles that you just mm-hmm. you know read off, cultural Christians, de-church mainstream evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, and then the BIPOC de-churched. The cultural Christians are about eight of those 15 million people. And then the next three groups are between two and two and a half million each. So the cultural Christians, they look like people who are upwardly mobile, who did not have a deep understanding of the gospel or the Bible, and the inertia of just their rhythms and habits basically has them out of the habit of going to church anymore. They've been gone from church for about 12 years now. They're in their early 40s on average. They're overwhelmingly white, 98% white, and they're doing well from an education and income standpoint. Interestingly enough, about half of them are willing to return to an evangelical church today. The top reasons why they left, attendance was inconvenient. Their friends weren't worshiping at church anymore. They moved. More casual reasons than casualty and, and painful And the reasons why they said that they would be willing to return were largely things that were relational in nature. New friends, lonely and want to make new friends. They miss church. A friend invites them. A spouse wants to go. They move and want to make new friends in a good community. So those were the reasons why, you know, about 4 million of them were willing to return to an evangelical church right now. Throughout these profiles, you often talk about their relationship to their parents. Because again, they were brought up a certain way, and obviously they're they're doing life differently now than their parents did. And there were a couple things with their parents. One, 
turned off by their parents' commitment to culture wars and refusal to listen. And then the second one, they're not seeing the fruit of the Spirit in their parents. It's tough to hear that. I think it's a reminder that, you know, as parents, wow, I mean, what a responsibility. I, I'm curious if those relationships, and I don't know how much you dug into it, but do they just remain fractured? We don't know yet. The hard scientist in me would say well, we would need to ask the same people the same question years later yeah. and to drill down to get at the heart of those things. Probably in the three to five year time frame, we want to ask a lot of the same questions and see what looks similar and see what looks different. The stuff with the parents is really hard and, it, and it's it's challenging and it's sad. I don't know if it's necessarily surprising. Obviously, for most of us, that's one of the most formative relationships, if not the most formative relationship, at least in, in certain times in our life. And so I think also the last decade in American public life, and I think particularly with the advent of social media and the ways in which social media, you know, you have the like button, I think that was introduced, I want to say in 2009, every platform has their dopamine inducing reward structure mm -hmm. for creating content that some people find interesting. The challenging thing about all of that is now when you have a reward mechanism built into social platforms, people are more self-revelatory than what they would have been before. And so I think in terms of public communication and discourse, there is the freedom for people to communicate more about their perspectives than probably what there was before the, this dynamic of American public life existed. And so I don't, think that, I don't think that's necessarily all good or all bad. It's just there are implications that are downstream from that. And now it's where everybody is at is far more clear than what it was 10 plus years ago. And there's going to be implications from that, particularly as people have divergent perspectives and sometimes strongly divergent perspectives. And again, all of these things are algorithmically incentivized. And in some ways, the stronger you feel about those things, sometimes that reward mechanism rewards you even further. And so I think over time, there aren't many impulses that are there baked into these things that create people finding as much common ground. And oftentimes our digital interactions become power over persuasion. And so th those are challenging dynamics. And what do you do if your parents are behaving poorly on the internet and are getting cheered on from those things? You can flip that script in the other way as well. So those things are going to have implications at the dinner table. And I'm sure that many people have experienced some challenges during looking back at their Thanksgiving and their Christmas. And I think that some of these things are just downstream from these particular dynamics of how technology has inserted itself into our lives and revealed things about people that we loved that have maybe changed our perspectives about how we view them and have altered maybe the amount of relational intimacy that we feel comfortable with. Those are hard and sad things. And one thing I, I found really interesting about this group, I mean, obviously there's the family fracture. Well, that's going to leave you more lonely. 
maybe depressed. But then there's the relational fracture. Like most of us, I mean, I know for me, my closest friends are my church friends, right? And without that community, people are, and, and you even found like more depressed, higher anxiety, I mean, all those things. And so the reverse then is that, and we often think, how do we invite people back to the church? And I thought it was insightful that you're like, these people need a dinner table invite. In other words, they're looking for a relationship, right? That's most likely what's going to bring them back to the church. What we talk about in the book is there's three levels of relationship that different, broadly speaking, profiles probably need. The second profile that you mentioned, the dechurched mainstream evangelicals, these folks left on average about three or four years ago. They're about the same age as that first group, early 40s. But this group is, whereas the cultural Christians, only 1% of them said that Jesus is the son of God, 98% of this second group said Jesus is the son of God. These people are, have a very deep understanding of the gospel, the Bible, and the kinds of things that you want to see from Nicene Creed level Christianity. And they're 100% of that group are willing to return to an evangelical church today. And so the three levels of kind of relational need that's there, that group, really, they just need a nudge. A nudge is something like a text, a phone call, a water cooler moment, talking out on the porch or in the cul-de-sac. Hey, I got this really cool thing going on at church, or I'm speaking at this thing, or I think you really like our pastor. Would you be willing to come to church with me? Let's go grab lunch after at such and such place. That's a nudge. I think when there is more pain or church hurt or these different kinds of things, and this should be obvious when you think about it, it's just people need the kind of intimacy that occurs around breaking bread together in a home at the dinner table, literally or, or, or figuratively and metaphorically. I think that when people need to be able to have an avenue when there's either interpersonal or institutional or both friction, mm. then they need to be able to have a place that is where they can experience somebody who's going to be willing to quietly, calmly, and with curiosity, engage them in their story in a way that they would want to be, be treated. So there, we have a third category of people who are just, they're probably just never going to return to a house of worship. The ex-evangelicals. No, the ex-evangelicals are done with the evangelical expression of the faith. Okay. 79% of them were willing to return to a, some form of Christian tradition. That was something that was very surprising. So just a hundred percent, they will not go back to the church they came from, which may be a good thing in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, certainly there are many different institutions I could think of that it, mm -hmm. it would be very unhealthy to yeah. return to. So, and that's the good news about all of this stuff. You don't have to return to what you left, you know, if mm -hmm. there was something, you know, unhealthy. I, I always think about these things in terms of truth, goodness, and beauty. Well, what's a healthy church where you can see the, the truth of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, and the beauty of the gospel all in the same place? The ex-evangelicals, I, I just want to camp there just a little bit because these are folks that, I mean, honestly, I have a lot of uh, empathy for and and understanding. I mean, they've been through some things that were, were pretty toxic in the church. In fact, you found they scored 74% higher on experiencing a lack of love from their congregation than the other four groups combined. And that that's heartbreaking. Like the place where you should most experience 
love, they experience a complete lack of love. And I'd be curious how many of them come from a fundamentalist background as well, because I mean, there just seems to be a, a correlation there between just a rigid adherence to rules and, and so forth, and, and even the culture wars and all of that, and just a lack of caring for the soul and caring for the human being, whether they agree with you or not. But these folks, where they look for answers, talk about that a little bit. We ended up calling this group ex-evangelicals because none of them are willing to return to an evangelical church. But what was really surprising was that 79% of them said that Jesus is the son of God. And they had the second highest view of the Bible, as well as Nicene Creed level Christianity. And so that would be things like the Trinity, the sinlessness of Jesus, these kinds of things. But what was interesting is this group was overwhelmingly female, two-thirds female, and they were middle-aged, average age 53, and they left a little bit after 9-11 on average in terms of the bell curve, and what does seem to be occurring there is they, they had the lowest income and the lowest education of any of the groups, and their relationship towards institutions in general was very strained. And so that was really interesting to see. It's not just that the church isn't working for this particular group, particularly the evangelical church, but American institutions in general aren't working well for this group. Much lower rates of marriage, much higher rates of divorce, the, the rates of depression, anxiety, loneliness, and suicidal thoughts were also elevated across the board, but particularly suicidal thoughts were very bad. I think I made a note of this in the book. Describe how you're doing with respect to suicidal thoughts. And where basically 100 is, I have no suicidal thoughts. Everything is rain rainbows and Skittles. And where, where zero is deeply, deeply struggling with suicidal thoughts. The average score among this group of people, the ex-evangelical group was 16. I just started crying. These are real people. And there's several thousand people that we surveyed here. Are some of these people no longer with us? Is some of these people? So I, I, I don't know. Given the number of people we surveyed, probably. So it's, I'm looking at that and it's just, man, it, it can't not impact you at a deep level when, you know, when you have any measure of empathy to think, oh my gosh, these are image bearers. And this is a group of people that are clearly, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of pain that's here. And there's a lot of things that just aren't working. And I don't know how many institutions there are, depending on where you're located and how many options you have. I think many people might have to go a long distance to find a place where they'd find a, a church that would have um, the kind of empathy and understanding given whatever is there in the story. Well, and it becomes almost cyclical because if you're divorced, I mean, I hear this from so many of my divorced friends that... You go into a church and you feel judged right away, or you feel like you don't fit in. or And so it, it can become very self-perpetuating, makes it very hard to go to any any place. So, wow. Uh, let's move to the de-churched BIPOC, because this one was surprising to me, too. I was not expecting the profile that you found of this group. So describe the Black, Indigenous, persons of color who have dropped out of their church. What kind of person are we talking about here? Yeah, so this group was fascinating too. Over two thirds of this group uh, was male. Yeah. Okay? 
And the average age there was early 50s. And this group on average left in the late 1990s, okay? Now, something that's really fascinating, when the machine learning algorithm that we use to sort the data set into these different profiles, we didn't let it see ethnicity or race in the data set and sort based on that. Now, what's interesting though, is that you have profiles like cultural Christians that are 98% white, and you have profiles like this one that are 0% white. And no, so while race is a, is a biological fiction, it is a sociological reality. And so you can see that race and ethnicity has a significant impact in terms of the ways that you're experiencing America and American institutions, and it has an influence on those things. So that was interesting. Another thing that was interesting was that this group, and you're talking two to two and a half million people, they had the highest income and the highest education of any of the different groups. Now, bear in mind, this is a group of people who aren't white, who probably largely willfully chose to connect themselves to evangelical institutions, which we all know trend from a sociological and demographic standpoint. Most evangelical churches trend in the in the Anglo direction of things. And so you wouldn't be wise to take the particular perspectives of this particular group and assume that everybody who's BIPOC in America would share the same perspectives. Very high incomes, very high education, head and shoulders above any of the other groups. And the cultural Christians are the, the next to that. And the BIPOC groups just stands head and shoulders above them. So this is a group that generally... I mean, those that have dropped out, at least the profile you gave was of somebody who's BIPOC that lives in a pretty white space. And so, I mean, I'm just, I'm looking at that thinking, is it uh, easier to disconnect from that church community? Because the, the black church is such a cohesive community that, you know, I mean, almost a uh, you know, uh, it, it's so strong in the community, I think even stronger than, you know, most white churches. Is it easier to disconnect from church once you kind of moved out of that space? And then, you know, you're in really almost an alien space in some ways. Yeah. In terms of black Protestantism, the black churches in, in American U.S. history have played more of a role in the local community life than say their predominantly Anglo counterparts. And I think a lot of that has to do with the amount of pressure that was placed on those communities over time. The, the BIPOC group was 76% African-American and 13% Latino. So when you combine the, the predominantly male with predominantly African-American, it means over half of this group was extremely upwardly mobile Black men. So you're talking at least a million Black men who of the 15 million people who left evangelical churches. The most pain in church hurt comes from the ex-evangelical group and the BIPOC group. By far the ex-evangelical group, they're all de-churched casualties. The BIPOC group is a mixture of casual and casualty the de-church mainstream evangelicals are all casual. And then most of the cultural Christians you'd characterize as casual. The last group we don't have much time to spend on because I do want to talk a little bit about some of the messages and, and the things that we need to say to all five of these groups. But the de-church mainline Protestants and Catholics, 
Not a lot of surprises there, I thought, that they're really concerned about the church doing some good when maybe the church they grew up in, and I know the profile, you give profiles for all these different groups, but the profile was uh, a man who grew up Catholic and the clergy sex scandal just rocked his world because it, it impacted his brother. And and those people are kind of done with church if it doesn't make a difference in a positive way for the community, right? Yeah. And, and the dechurching that occurred among mainline and Roman Catholic occurred earlier than hmm. the dechurching that we're seeing among evangelicals. You know, dechurching among mainline Protestants is more starting in the mid 80s and extending into the late 90s. And then you can kind of shift that up about five years for those who are leaving Roman Catholicism from the early 90s to like early aughts. And then, you know, dechurching among evangelicals kind of looks like the uh, <laughs> the Apple stock chart um, just a little bit later, you know, <laughs> kind of going, going hockey stick. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last segment of your book does talk about those who had dechurched from evangelical churches, how we might be able to bring them back. And, you know, I really appreciated that you talked about not just beliefs, because that's what we hear so much about. In fact, when you were talking in the beginning, you're saying, you know, we think of people who don't believe in the Bible anymore, don't believe in God. And that's not what we're finding, by and large, with a lot of these groups. But where we're not looking is the sense of belonging and the behavior. So would you talk just a little bit about that and why this is important? Yeah, in sociology of religion, Jim and I learned from our conversations with Ryan that they have these three categories of belief, behavior, and belonging. I think in the 20th century, most of the ways in which we communicated the gospel to people was belief-centric. And when you look at like apologetic literature from, from that century, most of it is focusing on, oh, the claims of the Bible or the claims of Jesus or the gospels are true. And it's okay. That's good. But I think the kinds of questions that we've seen more frequently in the last decade or two have been questions about whether is Jesus good or is he beautiful? And what does that mean for me in terms of how I relate to other people and to community? And so those are more of belonging type questions than truth questions. And so I think that it is important for us that we be building healthier institutions. And like I said before, we want to have you know, churches that emphasize the truth of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, and the beauty of the gospel. Is the Jesus way a path towards to human flourishing to me? Will I find people who treat me with the fruit of the spirit? with love, joy, patience, peace, you know, all of these kinds of things. The good news about all of that is those are things that are within our control. We can walk in, and keep in step with the spirit and we can bring the kinds of change needed to at the institutional level to try to really bring our churches in line and in step with the Holy Spirit and in line and in step with what God has revealed in his word. And as we do those things, we can, we can be building beautiful places for people. Will those things ever be perfect or whatever? No. But I think that impulse to be always reforming, it needs to be there. And we need to be willing to have hard conversations with ourselves calmly 
but we need to be willing to hold up mirrors to ourselves and ask ourselves, how can we do better? A question that you ask in the book that I think is powerful is, does your church operate more like an event or a family? And I have found it just in so many churches, it is an event where you can come and you can go and nobody even knows you. And it's no wonder if that's what people think of church, that they're leaving. So if there's not that family component, yeah, they're just not going to stay. I think it was interesting too that you found that online church is basically a back door. Like people might go there for a while, but if they're not connecting relationally, which how can you, your, your virtual church, they end up leaving. And I thought on the behavior side where you talked about that the church talk about hypocrisy, if they don't see our beliefs and our actions lining up, they're not going to stay. And so we can only touch the surface really in a podcast, but the book I would just highly, highly recommend. There's so many good things in there, I think, instructive for us in how we can do better, how we can reach out, but how we can, we need to be something different, I think, before we can even invite people to what we have, because if we're not really functioning healthy as a church, then we can't invite people to it. But uh, before you go, I just want to give you, you know, an opportunity and last thoughts that you'd like to say to those, and especially those right now who are listening, who they're still de-churched. They've had it. What I want to say is that regardless of how people, humans, and human institutions have hurt and harmed or failed you. I have never been hurt or harmed by Jesus. And I continue to fall more in love with just the goodness of his gospel. And look, I've been before in my current role, I've been a pastor for for some 15 years. And I should probably be de church based on the things that I've seen over the years. There's nothing that that's in the book Aside from the parental pain, I don't have that there, but pretty much any other category that you can that you can talk about, I've seen it. And I should be at risk. But I just know at the end of the day, if anybody else had the words of life, I would go and <laughs> I would go there. But nobody else has the words of life but Christ. And he has died for his church. Is she a mess? Yeah. Is some of her parts way more messed up than others? Yes. Some to a fatal extent? Yes. Should there be some institutions that don't exist? Yes. However, and sometimes for certain people, it's going to be more proximate than others, but there are still good places where you can find that where the body of Christ functions like a family. So I'd encourage you to go back to God's word and look at all those one another's that are there in the text and find a place where you see those one another's embodied and where you can see the the truth goodness and beauty of the gospel all in one place there's just such tremendous hope in Jesus it it is the treasure in a field that it is worth selling metaphorically speaking all that you have to go and pursue. Only Christ has the words of life and only in him can we find redemption and the hope of a future where recreation 
is happening and redemption is happening as far as the curse is found. So good. And I think what we're finding is that people are open to Jesus. It's just the church. So I do pray. I know for me, I feel just extraordinarily grateful that I found a body of believers and it's been a lifeline for me. So I just pray for that for other people. But I thank you, Michael, for helping us understand these different groups of people and and also understanding what maybe we're doing wrong that we can fix. Um, appreciate that. Love your book. So thank you again so much for taking the time. Thank you, Julie. Appreciate it. And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And just a quick reminder, if you'd like a copy of Michael's book, The Great Dechurching, we'd be happy to send you one for a gift of $30 or more to The Roy's Report this month. Again, we don't have any large donors or advertising. We simply have you, the people who care about reporting the truth and restoring the church. So if you'd like to support our work and get The Great Dechurching, just go to julieroys.com slash donate. That's julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash donate. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. That way, you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks for joining me today. Hope you were blessed and encouraged.